Hello, everyone, and welcome to Strange Sound. I'm Joe, here again this week. Glad to be with you. I am recording this on Saturday, June 5th, 2021. And um, let me begin with my traditional disclaimer, which you are all, all eight of you, or nine of you, or 12 of you, or however many of you there are, I could probably count on both hands (laughs) who are listening to this. Um, If you're listening to this, I will give to you my uh, standard disclaimer, which is simply this. The views expressed on strange sound, strange as they are, are my own. Um, They reflect the views neither of anyone I'm associated with, nor my employer, nor my co-workers, nor my family members, nor my cats or dogs. I don't even have any dogs. I don't live with any dogs. None of the neighborhood dogs agree with me. Uh, No one agrees with me on these topics whatsoever. There are one or two ideas that I put forward that may be the um, product of someone else's mind or imagination. In those cases, I will often try to... um, Attribute those ideas to those people. Um, if, if I neglect to do that from time to time, I do apologize, and I invite you to point out my error. Um, I will be glad to correct any errors that I make. Um, I'm glad to have a conversation with anyone who wants to have a conversation about the topics that I discuss here on Strange Sound, and uh, would be happy to hear from you in any case. So, anyway, more on, more on that later, as is my habit, as is also my habit, I am going to read for you my latest blog post, which um, I call on this show my political rants. I should say my furious rants. That's what I call them on this show. (laughs) What I call them on my blog, the uh, category on my blog is named political rants. And you can find these at big-green.net. That's my home base, big-green.net. Just follow the blog tab, click on the blog link, and look for the category named Political Rants. You will find the blog post that I'm referring to today, that I am reading today. I'm adjusting my volume here, being my own engineer. Um, <laughs> forgive me. Um... You will see this posted near the top or at the top, and it's called um, Doing the Wrong Thing Again. My political rant from June 4th, 2021, which was a Friday. Again, you're probably hearing this on Monday if you're hearing it at all, uh, or sometime after Monday, which will be the 7th, I believe. So uh, just bear in mind that this is a post that I posted on Friday the 4th. I am reading it on Saturday the 5th. And uh, so, you know, it's quite possible that some of what I'm saying here will be dated by that point. I don't think there's a lot of dated date-sensitive material in here. I think this is just kind of a general commentary on things. Um, so anyway, without any further ado, doing the wrong thing again. We live in a violent society. I think that's as close to a truism as anything can be. Mass shootings are a fact of life in America, and they happen with a sickening regularity. Gun violence takes a very heavy toll, and violent crime has spiked since the pandemic, specifically homicides over the course of 2020. It was, of course, a year of exceptions. 
though many pundits and prognosticators have claimed that the increase is largely the result of police going into a kind of defensive crouch in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and the subsequent uprising. I've no doubt that police departments have pulled back. Some made a point of doing so after previous high-profile deaths of people of color in police custody. On the podcast, Why Is This Happening? Um, This is uh, Chris Hayes' podcast. Patrick Sharkey talks about the various factors behind this rise in violent crime. Less aggressive policing is one that he names, but he makes the point that a lot of community-based services that contribute significantly to reducing crime were shut down during the pandemic, along with everything else. This in some ways reflects the divide between right and left perspectives on how best to address crime. Not surprisingly to anyone who follows this blog, I come down on the left side of this question, and I do so with what I consider to be really good reasons. The idea that as a society we should reduce crime by over-policing disadvantaged communities is cynical beyond belief. Yes, you can marginally depress crime by mass arresting people, throwing them in jail for long terms, harassing people of color, etc., but in so doing, you, you do irreparable violence to entire communities. That in itself is criminal far beyond the level of anything you might hope to prevent. Other approaches work better, frankly. Mutual aid, community-based counseling and mentorship services, nutrition programs, housing support, direct aid to families and individuals, etc. They also build communities, not destroy them. Important distinction there. (sighs) Then there's the Dirty Harry syndrome. (laughs) The advocates for hyper-aggressive policing work to create the impression that cases like the murder of George Floyd are necessary byproducts of the service police provide. Sure, goes the argument, occasionally someone gets killed who probably shouldn't have died, but that's the price you pay for having safe streets. Can't make an omelet without breaking a few skulls. I mean, eggs, right? There's a visceral appeal to this argument, a kind of cathartic give-them-what-they-deserve attitude that makes a lot of white people feel right with the world. There's a reason why movies like Dirty Harry were big hits. It's a very attractive narrative for people who don't do a lot of thinking. Of course, we know that political careers are made on hyper-aggressive anti-crime politics. That's true of everyone from your local DA to the President of the United States. It's a lot easier to get taxpayers to pay for MRAPs and sophisticated weapons for the cops than it is to get them to fund after-school programs and free breakfasts for kids of color. And even though aggressive policing is a bad solution to the problem of crime, it's an easier sell for politicians than the much more effective and less destructive approach that involves supportive community services. Let's face it, there's a lot of money in expanding the police prison state just like there was a lot of money in slavery. That's why defund causes so much consternation. It hits them where it hurts. Very insightful on the part of BLM to work that out. We need to carry that knowledge with us as we seek real solutions to this dysfunctional system. Love you, Joe. Anyway, that's my uh, furious rant for the week. If you want to read this rant, once again, go to big-green.net. Go to Political Rants. Uh, actually, if you just land on the blog, um, it should be, I believe, the second entry down, um, assuming you get there sometime on the week of the 7th. 
it should be there. If you can't find it, reach out to me. I'll point you directly to it. Anyway, that's my blog. So what do I have to say about this? Well, there is that visceral attraction to the more kind of dramatic, um, satisfying narrative of going out and punishing the criminal and, you know, giving people what they deserve. And I think that's always an easier sell for DA candidates, right? It's an easier sell for DA candidates. It's an easier sell for congressional candidates. It's an easier sell for judicial candidates in local judgeship elections. And I've seen it firsthand plenty of times. I mean, everyone has. Every community has seen this. People running on tough on crime. I worked at an ad agency uh, years, probably, well, I should say decades ago. <laughs> I worked at an ad agency. It was a relatively small shop. And we did some election advertising. I remember doing an election ad ad series for um, or some promotional materials and press releases and things like that for a judicial candidate, a local judicial candidate. And it was really just, the race was really just a competition between two people who were talking about how long they were going to lock people up for. And to be fair, the candidate was a very nice person. She was a very nice person. It's just that that was the politics of the time. And that's the way people, you know, approached it. And, uh, I, you know, I wasn't, wasn't real happy about contributing to that in any respect. And I didn't contribute very much to it. Um, I tried to avoid it as much as possible <laughs> while making my grisly living at the, uh, at the trough of the advertising industry on a local level. But that's uh, that's not unique, right? That's not unique. We had DA candidates here that are, you know, basically lock them up. Um, we've had congressional candidates that were, you know, formerly district attorneys. And I'm talking about Democrats here. I mean, we have a congressional representative right now who, you know, ran to be a judge and um, didn't get elected. She was a uh, she was a member of the Assembly, New York State Assembly, I believe. Um, I can't remember whether she was a senator or Assembly member. I think she was an Assembly member um, for New York State for many years and made her way into Congress. Um, you know, it was always a tough end crime type lawyer. Um, so not unusual. Not an unusual thing, and it's an easy sell. The thing is, you know, like this Sharky guy says, and I'm, you know, he's basing his comments on on research and on, you know, a lot of work done by people that, not necessarily research that he's done himself, but people he's mentored or people that he's been associated with academically for years. I think he's at Princeton. And he... You know, he's looking at the data and he can see that this is, you know, sure, you know, hyper over aggressive policing does have a tendency to depress crime in certain areas, um, in certain respects, but it's also a highly destructive practice 
that tears communities apart and that contributes to the degradation of communities that are underserved to begin with. And it becomes like an occupation, like a colony within a nation, as uh, speaking of Chris Ace, <laughs> it's, it's like colonialism, right? People are put on the defensive. And cities like New York, where stop and frisk was, you know, pretty much the rule of the day for well over a decade. And it's still rough. But again, this is, uh, this is a kind of a cathartic thing that appeals. It's, it's an easy appeal to express for a politician. It's an easy argument to make to white people because white people are afraid. Because white people are on top. They are the people with money in any given community and they want to protect what they have. So you can make an argument to them that, yes, you know, this may result in some injustice from time to time. People may be caught up in the system when they otherwise wouldn't need to be. Um, people may be killed from time to time. But this is the cost of keeping you safe. And you want to be kept safe. And that's the argument they make to white people. And white people, by and large, buy that argument. You know, because they're afraid of being mugged, right? I mean, there's a saying that goes around that that I've heard come out of the mouths of uh, progressives even. That say, you know, a progressive is just a conservative who hasn't been mugged yet. Well, that's, you know, that's pretty much a white person thing to say, <laughs> right? It's just like, okay, um... That's ridiculous. And yes, when you've been affected by crime in some way, if someone has robbed you or or beaten you or, you know, injured you in some way, sure, you're going to have a visceral reaction to that. And and you're going to resent it regardless of what the social the social differential is between you and whoever attacked you. If there is one. And there may be, right? But that doesn't make it not true, right? I think a lot of abolitionist thinkers now, prison abolition thinkers, um, talk about the fact that you can't really, I mean, a lot of them are victims of crime as well. And they talk about the fact that you can't really base, you can't build policy on this visceral reaction. This, this personal protective reaction that people have when they're the victims of crime. It's just a bad way to build policy. So what do we do about it, right? I think we involve ourselves in our community a bit more. And, I, you know, I'm talking to myself as much as anybody else. <laughs> I mean, seriously, there are yawning needs in our urban communities across the nation and in our rural communities across the nation as well come to think of it you know and it's it, there there's no end to what's needed in these communities and the last thing they need is more people with guns responding to situations that people with guns cannot solve that people with guns cannot address i've talked about this in previous episodes and you know again i'm not an expert in this this is just my opinion, but I'm, I'm saying to have this one tool 
to address a whole panoply of different types of problems is just nuts. And the defund the police movement is not a radical idea. It's it's an idea that involves taking some of the funds that we spend on this and spending it on other, on other initiatives that are going to support healthier communities and more cohesive communities and redress some of the some of the problems that have been that have been plaguing these communities on the basis of being of us being such an unequal society in other words you know addressing inequality much of which has been based on on race and on ethnicity it just seems like a no brainer but it's a hard sell and as we can see from our national politics, it isn't like they're you know breaking any land speed records and getting that type of approach in motion. I don't even really think they're seriously discussing it at this point. So how do we build this change from the bottom up? Part of what we have to do is stop them from making things worse. <laughs> I mean, in all honesty, I didn't get into it in the blog, but... Um, it occurs to me that our approach to the problem or the question of crime in the United States is very similar to our approach to foreign policy and, you know, not only diplomacy, but military policy around the world. We seem to think that sinking hundreds of billions of dollars a year into military hardware and military capabilities around the world is going to somehow make us safe. And just to take a single example that's particularly salient now, what if we took just a piece of that money that we spend on the Pentagon and sunk it into producing and distributing efficiently and effectively and globally COVID vaccine? What if we took that, what we call a national security budget, a budget that nominally at least, is supposed to try to keep us safe. It's money that we spend supposedly to keep ourselves safe from dangers out in the world. What if we took a piece of that money? It wouldn't take that much. What if we took $40 billion from $750 billion and just sunk it into producing and distributing that vaccine that we paid to have developed, by the way, and distributed it around the world and made sure that people in Africa, in Asia, in South America got their shots and they got them right away over the course of the next few months. Big job, but it could be done. How much safer would that make us? A lot safer. Safer from the scourge that we've been living with for the last year? And how much would that improve our image around the world? Not as a global hegemon that's just out for our own interests. But as, you know, look, we're always going to be seen as a colonialist, right? But honestly, if we're putting shots in people's arms to save their lives around the world, that can only help. That can only reduce tension. Unless we just really don't want to do that. We could easily do that. It wouldn't take that much. And it would be even in our narrow self-interest to do so. 
Because if we don't shut this COVID thing down around the world, it's going to come back and bite us in the ass again and again and again. It already has on an international basis with the variants that have been coming through. We live in a globalized world now. We live in a globalized economy that's been, that's been pushed upon us really over the last 40 years hyper-globalized economy. And you just can't shut the rest of the world out. And if this COVID thing is allowed to sort of fester in, in across whole continents like Africa, like South America, there's going to be variant after variant after variant. We'll never be rid of it. Let's just take the money, buy a bunch of shots, pay a bunch of people to distribute them, and get it out there and get it into people's arms now. That's worth many times over the amount of, of arms that we're going to be investing in over the next year. Many times over. That would make us so much safer than those arms ever could. Of course, we know why that doesn't happen, right? We know that there's a political, there's a political economy question here. It's the military-industrial complex, as Eisenhower called it. He was going to call it the military-industrial-congressional complex. But he stopped short of that because he didn't want to put too many people's nose out of joint. And uh, quite honestly, it's, it's a political-economic question. Both the one of um, policing, over-policing, and the national security, international sort of militaristic colonialism question. There are key sectors of our economy. There are key business sectors that benefit directly from these policies. There is a prison industrial complex. There is a military industrial complex. These are not conspiracy theories. These things exist. Huge industries that make tremendous amounts of money off of the way things are. That is what we're fighting. Just like when we're fighting for for climate change legislation and for reasonable policy, sane policy on climate, we're fighting against the richest companies in the world. The Exxon Mobiles. Right? We're fighting behemoths with deep pockets. You know, companies that can buy legislators, that can buy whole legislatures. I mean, this is this is a huge fight. And fighting over-aggressive policing is very similar because it fills the pockets of gun manufacturers, prisons, <laughs> prison companies, you know, sort of carceral providers... <laughs> you know, like the private prison industry, but also, you know, even the public prisons. Just the amount of money that goes into that, that goes into the community around it, that creates a bunch of jobs, right? I mean, there's a prison in my own, there are prisons in my own uh, congressional district here, um, state prisons, and they're good-paying jobs, right? They're, a lot of them are union jobs. And there are people that are, you know, they make a living off of this. 
And if people started being released from prison or not put there in the first place, you know, those jobs would go away. And that gives them a constituency. And those jobs generate in an inefficient way, just like the Defense Department, in an inefficient way, it it generates secondary impacts in the community. People spending their money in the community, spending money that they made at the prison, spending money that they made at the defense plant. It's not as efficient in those respects as, say, hiring teachers, right? (laughs) Because a million dollars will buy more teachers than it will buy, you know, technicians in a or, or prison guards, or prison administrators, right? And, and you know, I'm, I'm giving examples. It's, it's much broader than that, the, the range of, of um, industries and types of companies that benefit from the way things are. So when you combine that with the ease with which you can make the argument, the simplicity of the argument, to say that we need to throw people in jail and we need to, you know, spend a lot of money on the, de- on the defense department because this is a visceral, there's a visceral um, attachment to that on the part, particularly of white people, but not, not exclusively, but largely people who, you know, have a stake. <laughs> they have a stake in the empire, you know. Centurions. <laughs> as it were. Um, yeah. So uh, that's that's part of the reason why we go for the solution that doesn't work as good. Part of the reason. Part of it is the, yeah, you know, those they're, they're all crooks and blah, blah, blah. Part of it is, you know, yeah, that guy deserved it, you know, that kind of thing, which you could hear from, I'm sure, almost every one of my neighbors would say that. And this, you know, no offense to my neighbors. If any of my neighbors are listening to this, <laughs> just tell me I'm wrong. But <laughs> practically anybody I went to school with would, would say the same thing. Not everyone, but some. Yeah, it's just the standard response. That's why these policies have, you know, taken hold, even though they don't work. And, I, you know, I want to, just to clarify, I'll close with this because I don't want to go on this too too long. But um, <laughs> when I say it doesn't work, I have to qualify that because it actually does work in as much as it accomplishes what it was constructed to accomplish. It's like the healthcare system, Right. You can look at it and say, ah, God, this doesn't work. This doesn't make people well. But the idea wasn't to make people well. It was to make people rich. Making people well has nothing to do with it. I mean, that may happen with, you know, less than a majority of the people who pass through the system as a byproduct of the system, because that's that's kind of what they produce. But really, the the idea behind the system is to make people rich. And that's kind of the way the political economy of of over-policing and of, you know, national defense, that's kind of the way that works too. It isn't really to make us safe. That's not the intention. The intention is to make people rich. 
and people have made ungodly fortunes off of the Defense Department. I mean, for God's sake, they've lost track of billions and billions of dollars over the years. They have something like seven, maybe 11 accounting systems. And they've, they've actually lost tens of billions of dollars over the decades. Where did that money go? People got rich off of that. <laughs> it's just untold fortunes being stuffed into people's pockets. And, you know, even legitimately, even, you know, traceable money that you know, we, we poured into various contractors at various points over the course of the last 70, 80 years, it's made fortunes. That's what it's for. It's not really about anything else. It's not about keeping us safe from threats. What threat? When they say people have been fighting for democracy in Iraq, or are fighting to protect our democracy in Iraq. You know, we're fighting them there so we don't have to fight them here. Bullshit. Nobody fights for our freedom. No offense to people in the military. I understand, you know, you need to believe what you need to believe. Whatever. I'm happy to discuss it with you. I don't blame the people in the military for, for what the military does. That's more our fault than it is yours. Our fault, meaning us, the voters. But honestly, nobody's protecting anybody's freedom. <laughs> the entire enterprise is just about making people... That's the primary goal is to make people's, people rich. And there are secondary goals that are more policy-oriented. Right. Anyway, uh, so I, I just wanted to clarify that bit. You know, when you say it doesn't work, yeah, it kind of does work if you look at it in terms of what it's intended to do, really what it was intended to do by its founders and by its, um, by the minds that cooked it up. Works great. It just doesn't work for the rest of us. If you analyze it as as a system that's supposed to keep people safe or to serve communities and make communities stronger, um, it's an abject failure. It fails time and time again. Part of it's the profit motive. The profit motive makes some of this inevitable. And it will always be with us to some extent while there's a profit motive in public policy. But we we can uh, you know this is fixable <laughs> we just need to do the work right anyway that's all i got i'd like to hear what you have to say you can leave a 1 minute voice message when you go to anchor.fm/strangesound that's anchor.fm/strangesound Leave a one-minute voice message, uh, you know, say whatever you like, uh, ask questions, give me feedback, push back, whatever. Um, I'll play your comments on the air as long as you're nice-ish. Now, you don't have to be completely nice. 
Uh, there's no blue laws here. You can swear. You can say whatever you like. Um, but I reserve the right to, <laughs> to edit your comments if you say things that are heinous. Anyway, but please feel free. Leave me a message. Um, you can also reach out to me on Twitter at Strange Sound Pod. Um, there are other ways to get in contact with me. If you go to big-green.net and click on the contact link, you'll find other ways to get in touch with me. By all means, you know, reach out, uh, talk to me, um, send me messages, send me IMs, um, whatever, you know, be glad to hear from you. Um, thanks again for listening. Once again, this is episode 66 of Strange Sound. Pleasure to be with you. We will see you next week. Bye-bye.